Thank you, Ben, and boys and girls. Uh, so thankful, too, for all of our worship leadership today. I happen to maybe do a little bit more than normal because uh, Matt and uh, Shelly and Sarah are with the Honduras team in Honduras, so we certainly miss Matt here this week and look forward to having him and the rest of the team back with us next Sunday. As we continue to think about setting goals as families, I want us to take some time to kind of what Ben was talking about, talk about how we can set goals for the ways that we talk to and about each other, how, how we relate to one another. One of the rules when I was a youth pastor that I always had on our trips was I just called it the no drama rule. It sums up a lot of stuff, just no drama. That meant no arguing and fussing and fighting over little things that didn't matter. That meant no insults and gossip and saying things that were going to hurt each other's feelings, just no drama. Because I didn't want to be up all night long helping you know a couple of kids smooth things out, you know, and, and get, get along with each other. Nothing ruined a youth trip faster than drama. And the same can be true of our friendships, and the same can be true of our families as well. How can we handle differences? How can we make decisions as families without unnecessary drama? And that was a question that the church family in Ephesus needed answered. And I think that we can look at what Paul said to them and adapt it to us today in how we can communicate with grace and kindness with our family. So turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 25 and look at verses 25 through 32. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Now, I want to kind of read the lead-in. So this isn't part of our main text, but look with me back up at verse 20. Let's read these few verses here to kind of set up the context here. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life and the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word and for these wise words and true words uh, spoken and written 2,000 years ago, but so very much spoken to us today and relevant to us today. We pray, Lord, that you would unpack these truths to us and help us to apply them to our lives as we go forward from this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, back in the day, there was a TV show. I think it was on TLC. My wife watched it for a while, and it was called What Not to Wear. I don't know if you've ever seen that or heard of that show. And basically, the premise of this show is you had some poor soul whose fashion sense was so horrific that his family and friends begged this TV show to spend thousands of dollars to give them a makeover. 
Right? And so they would go to the poor victim's home and they would go through their closet and they'd pull out all the out-of-fashion, ill-fitting, you know, horrible clothes to get... Now, now, wait a minute. Why is that one up there? That is the epitome of early 90s fashion, I will say. And that is a striking-looking young man. Um, all right. That, that's me. Um, but yeah, so they would go through and get rid of all these horrific, out-of-style clothes, and then they would get their new wardrobe, and they'd dress them all up and parade them in front of their family and friends. Truly an embarrassing experience, I'm sure. But you know, it is embarrassing when you find out you're kind of maybe wearing something that's out of style and out of fashion, or you're improperly dressed for the occasion, whether you're overdressed or you're underdressed. We don't, we don't like to do that, right? We want to be in style and in fashion But have you ever wondered whether you're spiritually out of style? What is your spiritual fashion sense like? When talking to others, do you use the right words or improper words? Do you use the right words, the right tone, the right approach for the occasion? Well, in this passage, Paul discusses the kind of things that really are out of fashion for the believer. The things that we should be taking and and tossing out and and cleaning out of our spiritual closet to to get rid of these garments of the old self and to put on the new garments as believers in Jesus Christ. And I think the only way to eliminate the drama, whether it's at work or at home or at church, is for us to do that and to begin to communicate with kindness. So what does that mean? How can we get rid of the drama in our families Well, the first thing Paul tells us in verse 25 is we should replace lying with truth-telling. So clean out and get rid of the lying and put on truth-telling. The Greek word there is the word pseudo. It's a word we use, right? If something isn't quite what it's supposed to be, we say that it's pseudo that. Uh, The word pseudo refers to any untruthfulness, deception, misrepresentation, exaggeration. Uh, It includes things like gossip, slander, Casting someone in an untruthful light. Now, both Jesus and Paul, and Paul multiple times does this, and Jesus, when he was asked the question, what's the greatest commandments, both of them pointed to Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself, as the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And both Jesus and Paul explain how that law perfectly sums up all the other laws, such as... Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. So if telling a lie is incompatible with loving someone, right? If, if telling someone the truth is the loving thing to do, then how can we be untruthful to the people that we say we love the most? There should be no place for lying. And that's why Paul gives us the reason. He tells us right here in this passage why we should be truth-tellers. He says it's because we are members of of one another. As Christians, we are part of the body of Christ. We are members together, connected as the family of God, how much more so in our homes, as husband and wife, as parent and child, as siblings, are we connected together. William Barclay describes this point in his commentary on Ephesians, especially thinking about us being members of one body and telling the truth. He said, we can only live in safety because the senses and the nerves pass true messages to the brain. If, in fact, the the senses and the nerves took to passing false messages to the brain, if, for instance, 
They told the brain that something was cool and touchable when in fact it was hot and burning. Life would very soon come to an end. A body can only function accurately and healthily when each part of it passes true messages to the brain and to the other parts. If then we are all bound into one body, that body can only function when we speak the truth. All deception impairs the working of the body of Christ. And it impairs the healthy functioning of a family. When we lie to others, think about it this way, when we lie to others, we deny them something we have, the truth. Right? I have the truth, and I'm telling you a lie. I'm keeping the truth from you. And that can cause someone to build their life and to make decisions based upon something that isn't real. And so it's not stable, it's not secure, it's not safe. Does that sound like a loving thing to do? To set someone else up for failure? Think about the damage a lie about your finances could cause to your family. Think about the damage a lie causes. If you've done something wrong and you lie about it, you can cause the blame to be laid at someone else's feet. Think about the damage a lie causes when we lie about what is sin and what is not. When we lie about the basic truths of the gospel, it can cause someone to lose eternal hope. Telling the truth is important. And when we're less than truthful, we can cause misunderstanding and disappointment, confusion, and helplessness. We end up building our relationships on sinking sand that can swallow up trust, security, confidence. John 8, 44, Jesus says, you are of, he's talking to the Pharisees, He says, you are of your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So that's Satan. A liar and the follower, father of lies. Lying is of his nature. Contrast that with what Jesus said about himself in John 14, 6, when he, Jesus said, I am the truth. And in John 4, 23 and 24, that God desires truth from his worshipers. So we need to put off the devilish garments of lying and put on the godly garment of truth. It's the first thing we should do. Secondly, in verses 26 and 27, Paul says, Don't sin with angry words. Don't sin with angry words. Now, anger in and of itself is amoral. It is a neutral emotion. It's neither good nor bad, given to us by God. There are times when anger is called for. Times when it's, it, it leads to good and it can protect us from harm. You can sort of think of as pain is to the body, anger can be to the soul. Let you know that there's danger. Let you know that something isn't right. And so anger can motivate us to right wrongs. Anger can prompt us to fight injustice, but it can also cause us to lash out at other people and hurt them. So it isn't so much whether or not you feel anger that's the problem, it's what you do with it. What do you do in your anger? That's why Paul, Paul didn't say, don't be angry. Paul said, be angry. Do not sin. Do not sin in your anger. And the problem is that when we're angry, we often want to make an impression on the people we're angry with, don't we? Maybe a painful impression. Not, not physically harming them, but, you know, if looks could kill, right? Shooting daggers, killing them with the silent treatment, you know? So sometimes we can really seek to hurt the person that we're angry with. 
And, and, and sometimes, we don't, sometimes we don't indulge the anger. Or even worse, we marinate in it. Right? We hold it in. We soak it up. We bottle it in there until something sets us off and we explode that anger all over, usually the least deserving person for that anger, right? You, you're mad at work, you come home and you unleash it on your wife or your kids or your, your husband. You, you, you unleash it on your friends or on that poor unsuspecting driver when you're late for work on Monday morning. And the other thing about anger is that anger often paints a false narrative where it's all about me. We're poor, misunderstood, abused me. I'm, I'm the victim. The, the world is wrong and I'm right. And it's me versus the world. And, and I'm suffering injustice at the hands of the system or my spouse or the man, whatever it is. And the more we indulge this false narrative, the more distrustful, the more defensive, the more unhappy we become and the more enemies that we amass. That's why Paul goes on to say, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, if we don't deal with our anger quickly, it does marinate in us and it goes sour and it gives the devil a foothold. It gives Satan an opportunity to use that anger to do great harm. You know, too often we, we do this. We let some perceived slight. Right? Somebody says something or the way they say it to you or they do something or maybe they don't do something. She walked right past me and didn't even acknowledge me. Right? Whatever it is, and we just kind of have this perceived slight and we let it fester and we let it grow within us and, and, and it hurts our feelings and it makes us mad. And, and all too often we do this with the people closest to us with our friends and co-workers, with our family members and neighbors. And that's because Satan thrives off driving wedges between people, sowing those seeds of distrust and discord. You may remember when we looked at the armor of God earlier this year, we looked at this, this name, you know, Satan, also called the devil, and this word devil is the Greek word diablos. It makes really great quesadillas. I've never had those before. Sorry, that's an old joke. Um, the Diablos means accuser, slanderer. I think it's no mistake that Paul uses devil in this passage. He doesn't say Satan, he says devil. He's reminding us that our enemy is a liar who murders reputation, who tells lies there's no truth, he wants to destroy relationships, and he will often use ungodly, unjustified, self-centered anger to do it. Amen? We've been there, on, either on the giving or the receiving end of that. We know. I heard a story of a missionary in Jamaica who was questioning some boys. He was teaching them the Beatitudes. And Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek. And that means the gentle, right? Blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek. And so he asked the boys, who are the meek? And one boy answered, those who give soft answers to rough questions. That's a good definition. The meek are those who give soft answers to rough questions. We would do well to remember that and how we deal with our family, particularly when we're angry. Number three, in verse 29, we're going to skip over here to verse 29. Uh, Paul tells us to build up instead of tear down. If we want to eliminate the drama in our families, let's be families who, tear each, who build each other up, not tear each other down. Now, your translation may use there in verse 29, uh, it, it may say... Um, 
Uh, no, mine says no foul language. Yours may say worthless talk or corrupt language. The idea is the same. We need to throw off any speech that's filthy, foul, or corrupt. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses means rotten, foul, or polluting. It's corrupt talk. It's talk that tears others down. And that can range from obscenities and dirty jokes to insults and verbal abuse. It's foul. It's corrupt. I love the message paraphrase of this verse. It says, Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps. Each word a gift. Say only what helps. In other words, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. I taught that as kids. Now, in Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes from two different psalms to really give us a very vivid illustration to convey how corrupt and polluting our speech can be. He says in Romans 3.13, Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Now, if you imagine an open grave that, that actually is occupied, you could imagine how foul that would be and, and, and why an open grave often in the Bible is used as a symbol for corruption. And, of course, we know that venom, poison, is deadly. That's what the Bible says, that a sinful mouth is like. It's foul. It's corrupt. It's like a deadly poison. It decays our character and the character of those who hear it, and it can destroy, can kill our relationships. James uses another uh, analogy. We heard it in our New Testament reading this morning in James 3.6. He says the tongue is a fire. So it's an open grave, it's venom, and it's a fire. The world of unrighteousness is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So we have a choice. As Ben was illustrating with that great uh, analogy there of the yeah, there you go, Ben. Right on cue. That great analogy of, of the sprinkles in the, in, the, in the hot sauce, or the, not the hot sauce, the chocolate sauce instead of the hot sauce and the pickle juice. That's a great analogy. So we have a choice. Whether we use the gift of speech to tear down, to pollute, to corrupt, to poison, or to build up, to nurture, to bless. God has given us speech as a gift so that we can communicate with each other. We can give instruction and encouragement to one another. We can pray to Him and praise His name. We can share His goodness and blessings with others. We can proclaim the gospel. We can set each other up for successes. That should be the choice that we make. Proverbs 16, 23 and 24 says that the hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent and their lips promote instruction. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the taste, and health to the body. In his book, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, author and speaker Joseph Telushkin, he goes around and teaches about the powerful impact of words, especially of our negative words. And he will often ask those in his audience, how many of you can go 24 hours without saying an unkind word to or about someone else? And there may be, he says, a few people might kind of raise their hand like this. And he says, most of the time you hear sort of this nervous laughter and you might even have somebody say, no, like that, you know. Listen to his response. Those who can't answer yes must recognize you have a serious problem. If you can't go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you're addicted to alcohol. 
If you can't go 24 hours without smoking, you're addicted to nicotine. And if you can't go 24 hours without saying something unkind to or about others, then you've lost control of your tongue. What about us? Can we go 24 hours without saying something unkind about or to someone? Something that tears down and pollutes? Let's challenge each other to strive to to speak kindly, even if you have some unpleasant truth to tell them. Even if you have to give someone an answer you know they don't want to hear, we can do it kindly from a place of love with the goal to build them up. That should be our challenge. Let's use language that builds up, not tears down. Now, Paul goes on to say next in verse 30, and this almost seems kind of unrelated, but he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So first question, what does that mean? What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, the Greek word there means offend, vex, or sadden. So moms and dads, when your parents, when, when, when your kids disrespect or disobey you, right, it makes you angry, right? But it doesn't make you sad. Doesn't it hurt your heart? Doesn't it grieve your spirit? And then that's why when I was a kid, you know, the, the worst thing my parents could do is give me that old, we're disappointed in you speech. You know, don't you hate that? So I'd rather my dad give me a whooping. Just get it over and done with and sit down and have my mom and dad look at me and tell me how much I'd let them down and disappointed them. Their hearts were grieved. That's what we do to God when we disregard the guidance and instruction of His Holy Spirit. We disrespect Him. We grieve His heart. Second question is, why does Paul mention this very serious sin amidst all these instructions about how we treat each other and how we talk to each other? What's the connection there? Well, again, let's go back to James chapter 3 and verse 9. He says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing out of the same mouth. And James says, My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. And then he talks about you know, springs, you know, bitter water and sweet water, salt water and fresh water. You know, can an olive tree produce figs? Of course not. James is making it clear that how we treat and talk to each other is intimately connected to our relationship with God. That vertical relationship with God cannot be separated from our horizontal relationship with other people. Jesus talks about this. Jesus tells us that if you are bringing your gift to the altar and remember that you have offended someone and you've not tried to make amends to that, God doesn't want that gift. He wants you to go make that relationship right. Jesus says we can't have unforgiveness in our heart yet expect God to forgive us. Jesus says how we treat even the least of these is how we treat Him. So there's a connection to our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. The Apostle John in 1 John puts it this way, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. That's how we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We grieve God's Spirit in the ways that we mistreat each other, in the ways that we talk harshly to each other, in the ways that we lie to and about one another. So the question is, are you blessing God and bringing Him joy through the way you talk to your family? Or are you grieving His Spirit? 
don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the last two points that Paul deals with, he, he talks in verses 31 and 32. I want us to look at that again just to refresh our memories on these two verses. He says, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, slander, be removed from you along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. So the next two, the last two points here. If we want to eliminate the drama in our families, we need to replace bitterness with forgiveness. Replace bitterness with forgiveness. Now, in the Greek, bitterness, that means harsh resentment. So when we have bitterness in our hearts, we're, we're resentful, we're cynical, we're, we're harsh and cold toward other people. It's the very same word you would use to describe something having a bitter taste, right? It's an unpleasant taste, makes you want to spit it out of your mouth. Now, who among us want to walk around with bitterness in our hearts then? None of us would say that we want to harbor unresentfulness and forgiveness in our hearts, right? Because those things are bitter and they do make you kind of frown and put a scowl on your face. They do make it hard for you to sleep at night. There's nothing pleasant about bitterness in your heart for you or the people around you. So why do we do it? Why do we sometimes hang on to the misdeeds of the past? Instead, we should be slow to anger and quick to forgive. The Greek word here, forgive, is charizomai. Its root word is the word charis. It means grace. It's where we get the word charity from. So to forgive someone means to be gracious toward them. They don't deserve it. Or it's not grace, right? You're gracious towards them. You freely pardon them for the wrong they've committed. Now that doesn't mean you pretend like the pain's not there. That doesn't mean you pretend like they didn't hurt you or that the wrong never happened. In fact, you can't forgive, you can't pardon someone until you acknowledge the fact there's been a wrong done, right? So ignoring it, burying your head in the sand, sweeping it under the rug, that's not what forgiveness is about. We confront the wrong, we acknowledge the pain, so that we can then freely release the person from their guilt. We pardon them in favor of restoring the relationship. And why should we do this? Well, Paul tells us very plainly, because God in Christ Jesus forgave you. God has forgiven you. You should forgive others. The Bible makes this clear time and again that if we are recipients of God's grace, we should be extenders of God's grace. That because He has forgiven our eternally greater offense, we should be willing to, offend, to forgive those who offend us. Now, I'm going to talk about this more in next Sunday's sermon, but for today, let's just put it this way. If we want to communicate with grace and kindness in our families, if we want no drama, we need to eliminate resentfulness. Get rid of the bitterness and be sweet to our families. Be quick to forgive. And then finally, we need to replace harshness with gentle speech. Now, sometimes, you know, you've heard this too, it's not what you say, it's, how you say it. Body language, tone, temperament, those things can communicate more than the content of what you're trying to get across. And so Paul gives us here some vices to remove, some, some things that are just harsh uh, elements in our wardrobe that will only bring uh, damage and hurt to our families. And the first of those is anger. As a David, we talked about anger. It's true, but this is a different word. In the Greek, this is a different word. This word means rage, passionate anger. It's that temper. 
that boils up from deep inside of you and it explodes at other people. It's that, it's that hot-headed rage that we should get rid of. Get rid of it. You don't need it. Second word he says is wrath. Now, some translations swap those two words. Yours may say wrath and anger. Uh, mine says anger and wrath. They're very similar words. Okay, They both can be, can be translated that way. This word, though, means a strong, intense displeasure with someone. And it carries with it the idea of inflicting punishment. So this is the anger that makes you want to take it out on somebody. You want, they hurt you, you want to hurt them back. Whether that's with what you say, with the look you give them, or with a silent treatment. However you do that, that's what this word means. And Paul is saying that as Christians, there's no room in our wardrobe for this kind of anger and wrath. Third, he says shouting. Get rid of all shouting. Your translations may say clamor or quarreling. It includes ideas like brawling, insulting, fighting. Basically, it's an argument that turns into a shouting match, what you might even call a fight. Not throwing punches, but throwing words. Lobbing verbal bombs meant to inflict harm. Don't do it. Those kinds of shouting match fights have no place in the Christian home. Number four, he says slander. Now, this is a Greek word that you're going to recognize. Blasphemia. Blasphemy. Not blaspheming God, but blaspheming those made in God's image around you. And to blaspheme means that you are using hurtful, injurious speech meant to destroy their reputation. You're trying to talk badly about someone, right? Somebody says, you're blaspheming God. That's blasphemy. You're saying bad things about God. What's well, about saying bad things to and about other people is what Paul is saying. That there's no room in the Christian home for words meant to hurt, meant to slander. And then Paul sums it all up in the, the last word in that verse with the word malice. Malice is a catch-all word. Basically, Paul is saying this list is not exhaustive because malice is anything that's wicked, anything that's meant to cause havoc or comes from a place of ill will. So Paul is saying if we want to get rid of the drama in our churches and in our families, we need to get rid of these things. These are harsh words, harsh ways of speaking to each other. And instead, he says, replace them with gentle speech. We get rid of these vices, all these things that are crowding up our closet that we don't need, that are ugly, they're distasteful, they stink. And Paul says you can replace them with, with really three. Three articles you can replace all that with. We've already looked at one of them, forgiveness. So let's look at these two virtues that we should put on. Kindness. Kindness. That means acting charitably, benevolently toward others, just as God acts towards us. In fact, in Titus, Paul says this. He says that when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Now we often talk about Jesus' love when He went to the cross for our salvation. We don't think about His kindness. But it was His kindness toward us for which Jesus carried our sins on the cross. And that means that Christian kindness means that we act sacrificially. We lay down our lives. We give up our rights. We lay aside our will and wishes and desires for the good and benefit of other people, even those who have wronged us. So how can we be kinder to our families in what we say and how we say it? Let's work on using our words for sacrificial service, for the good, for the encouragement and the building up of our family. And that means being gentle, 
It means being caring and helpful and useful. It's the opposite of harsh and neglectful speech. In fact, if you think about that English word kindness, what's the root word? It's the word kin. Kindred. Right? Even the word kind. Talking about things being after their kind. In other words, Paul is saying we should treat other people as if they're family. Well, you can't really do that if you don't treat your family well, right? We need to be kind, most of all, to those that we are most connected with. And secondly, he says, put on compassion. Now, your translation may say tenderheartedness. Okay? The literal Greek is have healthy bowels. Now, that doesn't mean you're supposed to eat a lot of fiber. Healthy bowels. If you remember in the ancient world, the bowels were the seats of the emotions, right? And if you think about it, when you're really scared, you're really mad, you're really excited, what? You feel it here, don't you? You get the butterflies in your stomach or, or whatever. This is where you feel it. So what Paul is saying here is that we need to, instead of having this anger and rage that's stomach churning and building up from deep inside, we need to be filled with compassion from deep within. We need to have a tender heart. That's a lot better way of putting it, right, instead of healthy bowels. We need to have a tender heart. And that means we strive to, to consider the other person before ourselves. That means that we are listening and seeking to understand them and we're being tender with them. It means that you're aware of the other person's pain and suffering. You care about their problems and difficulties. You put yourselves in their shoes. You know, my mom used to tell me, if somebody's giving me a hard time at school or whatever, uh, mistreating me in some way, she'd say, David, you don't know what their day was like today. You don't know what their family is like at home. You don't understand why they're acting out the way they are. And she taught me to try to put myself in their place and think about that. That's what Paul is saying. We need to be that kind of tender-hearted, that kind of compassion toward one another. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about God not treating us as we deserve, right? He doesn't treat us as we deserve. Jesus gave His life, took our punishment upon Himself, suffered the righteous indignation of a holy God on human sin, and He did it all for us out of His love and kindness so we could be forgiven, so our relationship with God could be restored, so that we could become members of His family. That's the model for how we should relate to each other in our homes, how we should talk to each other and listen to each other and respond to each other. First and foremost, I pray today that you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I pray today that you know that you've had that experience where you recognized that your sins deserve punishment, but God's grace was available to you for forgiveness and for new life. I hope that you've been born anew into the family of God. And if you have not, then in just a moment when we sing, I'm going to be standing right down here. I would love nothing more than for you to come and say, David, I need to give my life to Jesus. David, I want to be born again in the family of God and belong to Him. I would love to help you begin that lifelong and eternal journey with Jesus Christ this morning. But let's also consider this morning how God would have us to treat each other. What drama needs to be eliminated in your family? What needs to change in the way you react to things, and the way you respond to your family? What poor fashion senses do you need to take home and burn and get out of your life so you can put on the new garments of compassion and kindness and patience and forgiveness? I don't think there are many ways we could be a better witness to this 
sin sick, lost, confused, contentious, angry all the time world than for them to see Christians being able to live and love each other like this. What an example we can set in our families. Would you stand with me and pray? And I hope that you'll respond as God's Spirit leads you today. Father, we thank You that You are so tender and compassionate with us. Lord, that You are eternally patient to us, long-suffering and kind, and You do not treat us as our sins deserve. Thank You for Jesus dying on the cross to make it possible for each and every person to hear this message and respond in faith and be made new. And if there's anyone here today that needs to do that, I pray they would not delay. They would come today to know Your grace and mercy. And because You have forgiven us in Christ Jesus, You expect us to forgive others. Because You have treated us with tenderness and compassion and mercy, You expect us to treat each other that way, especially our families. God, forgive us. It's a daily battle. It's not a one-and-done decision we make. It's something we must decide and work on every single day. And Lord, You know I don't get it right. None of us do. We need to work and encourage each other together on this journey. Help us to strive to be the kind of families that bring honor to Your name, that don't grieve Your Spirit, and can be a true witness to this world. Whatever You're speaking to our hearts, Lord, may we respond today, and may we carry this truth into the world around us as we leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.